Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The voice I'm obsessed with right now is the guy that does the Webflow video training. Oh, because I don't know this guy. I'll send you one of his short videos just so you can appreciate what I'm talking about. But he has this, this tempo and this way of saying and that is so like... I can't tell if it's like ASMR for me or like what it is, but it like it simultaneously makes me happy and want to kill him. Huh. All right. He'll be like, it's very simple. We're just going to start this project and press this button. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my New Year new co-host, Rodney <laughs> Evans. I wish that I felt more like a whole new person in 21. Anywho, hi, everyone. Here we are. On today's episode, we're going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about Marxism and socialism and capitalism, and more specifically, inside business, this concept of profit, performance, and success. We talk a lot on the show about what's wrong. We don't always talk about what we're trying to optimize for, what we're trying to get. But before we unpack that, we will do the check-in round. As we always do, we will start this episode with a check-in round to get ourselves present and rolling and connected and to maybe learn a little bit of something new about each other. So our question for today, apropos our episode, is how would you describe your relationship to money? Yeah, so I, I like this one. I think the first thing I'll say is that to me, it's very connected to ideas around freedom and specifically maybe my freedom to do what I want the way I want to say what I want the way I want to say it in public. I think right now I'm fairly restrained, actually, which listeners might be surprised to learn. <laughs> but I don't, you know, I don't get out there and shit post on Twitter the way I would if I felt like I just never had to work again. And then, you know, I, I grew up safe and, and middle class and then upper middle class, but I definitely had to kind of earn my own way, you know, pay my own car insurance, have a job from the time I could have a job. So it has always felt like something that is my job to do mm-hmm. to solve the money problem for myself. It figures into my idea, I guess, of like personal success, you know, in a way that I, you know, don't love, but just feel is kind of baked in. Yeah, Totally. I feel like it's it's pretty common in conversations with people for money to be very related to freedom. And it feels similar to me, but for a slightly different reason. In every assessment that I've ever taken and any astrological profile, like the the thing that pops from my psychology is about independence. And so for me, money is less about the freedom to say and act in a certain way. It is always about the freedom to leave. 
So <laughs> I just like, I grew up in a household that was very much like, as a woman, you need to have your own money. You need to not be dependent. You need to mm. be able to go and do and quit and separate and whatever, whenever you want to. And those are like very deep, deep rooted lessons in me. And so I've always looked at money from childhood, and this has been very much reinforced in my marriage because Ed has a lot of very similar tendencies as like, if you have enough money, you just don't have to do stuff that other people want you to do. And like when people obligate you to something you don't want to be obligated to, you can refuse. Right. And, (laughs) and not only can I refuse, I have refused a lot of times, including quitting something this week because I'm just like, <laughs> I don't like what you guys are asking of me this. anymore. I'm done here. And so I think it has a lot to do with that. And then also similar to you, it is such a signal in our society of value and of contribution. And in a system, you know, when I look at earnings and I look at what I'm making and things and, and what clients are paying for, it has very little to do with what that money actually affords me or I can buy and more to do psychologically with like, oh, I am worth this to Mm. people. And Mm -hmm. that does have meaning to me that it probably shouldn't because so much of it has to do with like luck and other things, but it's still in there. And I think as we get into this episode talking about capitalism and and wealth amassing, like we can't ignore the fact that money is a signal to people of what they are worth. I cannot tell you how many times I'm listening to another podcast about fill in the blank billionaire And when the question comes up about why keep doing this, why are you working a 12-hour day, it always comes up to like, well, money's the scoreboard. Right. right. right? And so as soon as it's not the how I put food on the table, and as soon as it's not how do I buy a second home, it's just a scoreboard. And and people can't seem to quit that game of like, how do I out-compete the others and show how special and, and, you know, amazing I am. Okay. So today's topic is mainly profit, performance, success, all those ideas of what does it mean to do this stuff right? What does it mean to run an organization and achieve? And then there's this undertone around, well, you know, are are Aaron and Rodney and the Brave New Work show Marxist, capitalist, socialist, crazy? Like, where do we come down on what you're supposed to be angling for? And so I guess I wanted to start by just asking you, How do all these ideas fit into what we usually talk about on this show? And how would you maybe set the table? Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this because, of course, profit, performance, success, measurement, et cetera, are things we spend a lot of our days talking to our clients about because that is very much what's on their minds. I think the reason to me that this show has been less focused on that is because that is the primary and often only focus everywhere else (laughs) on earth. And, um, and we'll talk about, yeah, we don't, it's like, just, you know, go read HBR. Like they, you know, it's all there. And certainly I think there is room for us to explore that at least personally, I am neither like a proper socialist nor do I believe in extractive capitalism. In fact, I very much believe in a third way that is about wealth creation, about high performance, about quote unquote success, but in a way that is constrained, meaningful, and not like a perversion of capitalism. So I think there's lots of room to talk about the polarities between those things. But to me, ultimately, 
one of the issues that I see in discussion politically and also in business is that it's one or the other. And it's like, you're either like someone who wants to be a billionaire with an exit or you're a Marxist. And I'm like, actually, there are a lot of people (laughs) who are responsible and and sort of conscientious capitalists in the world who believe in industry, believe in performance, believe in wealth and wealth creation, but just don't believe in it at the cost of our social systems and democracy. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the characters who has come up in popular culture this year, at least in my feed, on this dynamic is Dan Price, who's mm-hmm. the guy that's the CEO of Gravity Payments, where totally. he upped everyone's minimum pay to 70000 a year. Yeah. And the whole world was like, what? Terrible yeah. idea. And it actually worked fine. And then when the pandemic hit and they took a big hit, he had to go to the group and say, what are we going to do? And they came up with a collective solution. And then now everything's fine and back to normal again and the company is profitable and it, you know and he is certainly making more money than 99.9% of people do and so it is interesting that we we lack a large volume of heroes and case studies and and examples of that where it's like how much is enough i don't know enough right like we can raise the floor to a level where we're not embarrassed about how we treat people and then whatever the ceiling is is great right Yes, exactly. And like that doesn't actually make you anti-capitalist. Thinking that the way that a lot of organizations are run in a way that really benefits a very, very small percentage of the people who contribute to organizational success is gross. Like that to me, you can believe that that is gross and still overall believe in a system where private industry is allowed to make money. Totally. For me, when people bring that up on Twitter or in conversation and start to say like, well, because you care about human beings and you're a humanist, you're, you know, you're a communist. I'm like, back the bus up. Like, first of all, (laughs) if I believe that organizations should be owned by citizens and not the government primarily, that's the first big dividing point. And I believe that. Like I, I, you know, my difference is I don't think all the corporations in the world should be owned by 10 citizens. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I think they should be owned by tens of millions. I think that we should have more cooperatives. We should have more employee ownership. We should have a better distribution of cap tables and just generally, you know, a better distribution of the spoils of doing this stuff. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it is free competition which is actually at the heart of capitalism Mm -hmm. and at the heart of evolutionary biology, this idea that like things will be challenged and overturned and refreshed over time. And what drives me absolutely batshit crazy about the kind of pro-capitalist arguments are like, oh no, you know, Amazon should be able to get as big as it wants. The banks should be able to get as big as they want. Growth at all costs, never-ending growth is capitalism. But what's weird is over time, it violates that core precept because big organizations have two things going for them that prevents competition. Number one, they can throw their weight around so they can use money to buy or intimidate. They can use money to lobby and influence legislation and regulation. Mm -hmm. And they certainly do. And then the more pernicious one is they become so big that they become systemically fragile. Mm -hmm. And so we can't punish the airlines during the pandemic for not saving any of their money. Because if we 
hurt the airlines, the whole system will crumble. People won't be able to travel. If we punish a bank, it'll blow up the whole economy. So we sort of remove that free market element when people get to a certain size. And yet getting to that size has become the banner goal of everybody. It's like, get too big to fail. And that's capitalism? No, it's not. And, And the reality is, even when you say things like, have more ownership by more people, there is something that is a philosophical ideal under that. But practically speaking, that is what creates adaptivity. Like Mm -hmm. practically speaking, that is what creates anti-fragile systems is that there is not one or a small handful of brains and power center that tries to control everything that in, in systems that are too big to fail. Like the ideas that we talk about on this show around participation, around humanity, around adaptivity are not meant to be inefficient. They create efficiency. They create (laughs) working in systems that are able to evolve. They create the kinds of systems that make a ton of profit because they are not constantly stripped of parts. And they're not brittle. They're not brittle. And it's like, I think airlines are a great example. Banks are a great example. Having worked in a bank for a long time where when the market wins shift, the only lever is to fire hundreds of very highly compensated people. That's not how banks should have to run. Like a good, (laughs) a well-designed evolutionary system doesn't require a bailout the moment the wind of the stock price changes. Again, there are certainly philosophical and theoretical underpinnings in what we're saying, but basically I think what you and I agree on in terms of our belief system is adaptive organizations. Absolutely. And that means don't run at the red line, right? Yes. Like if you were a lion on the on the plains of of Africa, you wouldn't go until you're literally one day from starving if there was food around. And by the same token, you wouldn't eat all the food in in, in the area and then be screwed when it was over. Like you, there's a balance that goes on. And what I think is really interesting or unique about our situation is that in nature, that balance is provided by other forces. So most animals, most species are just grossly trying to grow and populate the earth. Right. I mean, look at the population of humans over the last 200 sure. years. We're yeah, just we're doing it. There's it's sort of unchecked, which I think we're mirroring in our markets now. But what's interesting is in nature, there are millions of years of balance and equilibrium being developed through that competition, that competition that can't be hijacked usually. Mm-hmm. And so and so there's something there. Now that's kind of on us is to basically be like, we have transcended that system, but we can see what makes it elegant. So now we have to provide our own balance. So even though I could go into another market or I could get another customer, or I could keep growing or I could extract more profit, should I? Yes. And what, what are my values and what are my principles and what kind of an ecosystem am I trying to create? What kind of a tax structure am I t- trying to create that will or won't encourage that iBanker from doing one more deal that's not super scrupulous? And so I think that is, it's now on us. And unfortunately, we're not very well equipped to do that. I mean, it brings up a couple of things for me. One is in the mentality of efficiency at any cost, where we've stripped out waste and we've stripped out extra capacity in the system or slack either in terms of financial resources or human resources to take on new work or shift 
you know, as, as our environment shifts, what we end up with, and we see this time and time and time again in companies that consider themselves sort of down to the bone in terms of efficiency, is that when something changes and they have to adapt, it is very expensive. Sure. And so what we are often saying is like by holding 10% slack in a workflow or in a system year on year, though you are carrying that cost in air quotes for a period of time, what that is likely to afford you when there's a disruptor or there's a black swan event is not an outsized, humongous, unpredicted hit to your mm-hmm. bottom line because sure. you have some ability to do something about it rather than being like, you know, every person on the floor is doing six jobs and working 16 hours. We couldn't possibly take on this new thing. So it's a lot of what we talk about in the, on this show in terms of the kind of org design that we want to see more of in the world is creating systems that are going to be around in the long term and that mm-hmm. haven't burned themselves to such an extent that the smallest disruption makes them crater. Well, and in many ways, I think a long-term, broader population lens is really what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about an anti-profit lens. We're not talking about an anti-success lens. We're not talking about there should be no millionaires or anything like that. What we're saying is, what's your time horizon for success? And what's your scope of success? And so if you say like, all right, my time horizon for success is I got to hit the quarter to get my bonus then you're going to optimize for things. You're going to do some even overstatements that don't actually work very well for humanity or for the organization 10 years from then or 20 years from then. And by the same token, if your whole lens of who am I optimizing for is me and the other executive cronies, and that's it, then the environment suffers, the community suffers, the broader population suffers, your customers may suffer all in the in in favor of that optimization. So it's less about don't optimize. We really are talking about optimization. It's just a different vector. It's like optimize for 10 years instead of one or 100 instead of 10 and optimize for most of the rest of us instead of just yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one thing that comes up for me when we talk about optimization. And I had a really interesting conversation yesterday, actually, with one of our uh, newer members, Tanisi, about this idea of growth at any cost is problematic for a variety of reasons that have to do with communities and oppression and other things. But also part of the issue with growth at any cost is that there's no orientation towards cycles. If you look at nature as an example, and you look at people who operate with more like native wisdom and are more connected to nature, what they understand is that growth is cyclical. You know, just like the seasons, there are times that are expansive and abundant, and there are times that are introspective and shedding. And any living system can and should be that way. We shouldn't (laughs) just be trying to be up and to the right at 6% a year forever. Because ideally, we have years and cycles that are huge for us. And then we also have periods of time where we integrate and understand and digest the growth experience that we've had as a system. And the fact that there's no room or tolerance for that in a lot of companies makes them less able to do the big growth years. I was having this conversation with the lady Dignan 
Brit the other Hi, Brit. night, and she was saying, you know, if you just play out the core premise of a philosophy, if you're not comfortable with where it ends up, then probably don't do it. And the example was, so my job is to grow until everyone on earth is my customer if I'm Amazon, right? Yes. Okay, cool. And then what? Where do I go from there? Oh, well, now you have to go into other categories. Well, and then what? Well, when you have all the categories and you have all the customers, then there's only one company left. And again, because it's unchecked by normal forces, which are supposed to be these market forces, these capitalist forces, because it becomes increasingly unchecked, it's it's challenging. And I think, you know, it's not that there's no competition. There is competition and there is some give and take. But often as we move into this you know, 2021 world, you look around and most of the competition comes from other giants. Mm -hmm. So it is, you know, like who's threatening to Amazon, not a little tiny e-commerce startup. It really is Microsoft on the AWS front and somebody else on another front and Google on this front, just other giants. It just creates a, a premise that if it's left to do what it's trying to do, things aren't great. And you compare that to maybe like the mindset of a Patagonia or something where they're like, what's our goal? Our goal is just to influence other people in our space to make more environmental decisions while we turn a healthy profit selling gear that allows people to enjoy the outdoors. Oh, that just feels like so much more wholesome to me. <laughs> and it's not that they're not profitable. It's not that the person that started it is not a multi, multi, multi millionaire. Right. It's just that like it doesn't need to literally eat the world and shit it out in order to consider itself a success. Yeah. And that leads really nicely into the topic of not just what is success, but what is the purpose of success? And a lot of the companies that I've worked with in the last 10 years are super, super singularly focused on stock price mm -hmm. and on shareholder value, which are constructs that exist in our society. But like, what tangibly is the purpose of making more money this year or doing more with less this year? Or or even what is the purpose under the inflation of the stock price? Like, what, what are we getting for that? It's like, okay, once everybody here has enough money to live comfortably, and, and that's a big if, because let's be honest, in most organizations, that's not true up until, you know, a, a fairly high altitude. But even if it were, okay, well, like, what then? What do we, do we want to be a Patagonia that's influencing the vector of the environment? Do we want to be a company that is investing in innovation that we believe in? Do we yeah. want to be a company that is donating in certain ways that are shaping policy? What are we doing it for? is a question that I don't hear in boardrooms very often. There's the real answer and the good answer or the thoughtful answer. And, and then there's what I wish the answer was. The, the real answer is mostly ego and fear and security and power and scorekeeping, right? Like the, the reason we wanted to grow is so that we can feel more successful and feel more safe and feel more ahead of the others and that you know, mom and dad are going to love us, right? Like, it's just all, that's really what's going on at a very deep psychological level. Then there's the explanation, which is also true. But the explanation, which is, you know, if you look at the last 200 years, the average quality of life for most people, not all people, and there's some people that have been targeted by this system, but for most people has gone up. Mm -hmm. Like, we just have more money per head, we have more food per head, we have less death 
per, you know, per population than we did before. And so this march towards more, it pays some like very simple human system benefits. But what is very interesting to me is that as that starts to level off, or as it starts to become way more asymmetrical, it, it just comes back to some of these other ideas that again, get often get labeled as as Marxist or anti-profit or anti-capitalist, which is just like, if some of that growth was going towards universal basic income, or some of that growth was going towards employee ownership, or some of that growth was going towards something to benefit the system at an aggregate level, then we would actually have a reason to get excited about it. Like mm. it would be part of, it would be part of strengthening the whole system mm-hmm. and it wouldn't stop the, you know, the folks at the top air quotes from taking a sizable share of that. There's still lots to go around, but it is just the question of, you know, to your point, why be successful? Well, psychological reasons, but more importantly, you know, it lifts the system when we move together, when all the different agents in the system continue to, to increase their production and increase what they're able to do for a dollar of time or energy. I mean, the fact that I can buy a box of Frosted Flakes for $2.99 today, the amount of calories per dollar in that box compared to what I would have had to do 300 years ago is Mm -hmm. just mind-blowingly, it's magic. Mm -hmm. Like, it's literal magic that for $3, I can just go buy 2,500 calories of food. And so, very simply put, that's the the what we get. But if we don't actually optimize for that, we get less and less of that. And we talked in a very recent episode about how in complexity, there are not, you know, sort of closed systems or bright lines around systems. And I think one of the things that you just hit upon that I just want to sort of dive a little deeper into is within an organization, particularly a large organization, how many times have you worked in or around a company where at the top, people are maybe billionaires, maybe millionaires many, many, many times over. Sure. And they've created employment practices specifically so that their lowest level workers, their call center employees, their their IT support, their janitorial people, et cetera, are employed in such a way that they don't have health benefits. Right. Now, You can take a moral view on that if you want to, (laughs) and I probably would. But to me, what's more important in this conversation about that is what is the cost to society of having to care for people who don't have health insurance? It's very high. And that cost is not um, being felt by the people who have made a billion dollars on the backs of people who are employed in such a way that they don't have access to health care. And so then what we end up with is, people with huge amounts of medical debt, people who refuse to get healthcare unless it's an emergent. Like, like we could go on and on and on about what the relationship is between those things, but that's one really very prevalent example that I see all over the place where I'm like, this sort of short-term extractive profit-at-all-cost mindset, that cost live somewhere else. You just right. don't feel it at the top. Other people it's are paying for it. So like if that's how you want to roll, fair enough. Like I'll let you live with your own karma, but let's not pretend that the cost isn't born somewhere else in society because it is. Well, and that's exactly my point about scope, which is to say, if you want to be a good capitalist, be a good capitalist full stop and look at the scope of the problem. And if you actually start to say, all right, what if I were CEO of society 
Mm-hmm. What would I do? What would I do? Well, yeah, you know what you would do is you'd be like, hey, wait a second. I noticed from a study in Canada that if you give homeless people $10,000, some disproportionate number of them like claw themselves back out of poverty, get employed, get housing security, get food security. And if you leave a homeless person on the street, the cost to the total system is like 58 grand a year. Mm-hmm. So right. what capitalist looks at that and is like, you know what, let's leave them out there. You know, I just don't, it's very Marxist or socialist to give them 10 grand. So yeah. let's leave them out there and let's pay 58 on the principal. That is so anti-capitalist to me. It is so anti-optimization. And that's the kind of stuff that just drives me batshit crazy is like, just look at a broader scope of the problem and then employ the same optimization that you're addicted to. And you'll see all this opportunity for balance and for collective success. And it won't prevent levels of personal success that are still ridiculous from happening. Yes, absolutely. And that's where, you know, when when I get into these conversations, I'm like, well, you person I'm arguing with about this are making an argument for capitalism, but you're actually, what you're bringing into it is your own worldview. So when we have the very similar conversation about homelessness in, in terms of like the prison system, it's like, right. you know, there have been a lot of studies done that tell us that providing educational resources in prison and counseling and a lot of other kinds of services really reduces the rate of recidivism and that the cost of those programs over time is significantly less than the nearly $200,000 a year it costs taxpayers to keep someone incarcerated in federal prison. And when I get into those conversations with people, I'm like, well, if you're a capitalist, Look at the PL of this and tell me where your argument is. And then they're like, well, it's like those people have to pay for their whatever, their crime <laughs> against society. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not what you're describing as a moral argument. That's not capitalism. Right, right, so right. So, like, right. let's just and be we clear pay on the which, capitalism side. <laughs> exactly. Let's just be clear what hat we're wearing now when we have these debates. Okay, so I want to wrap things up with a brief look at the ready because I know that a lot of listeners enjoy this kind of coming to clarity with our exact situation. So I'm just curious, how would you articulate the Ready's stance on profit and company performance and success? Like, what do we care about? What do we talk about? What do we <laughs> think? Do you, What do you feel like is in the water? I don't think it's an area that we have mastered, by the way. But no. I'm just curious what you think we are doing. I'm laughing because I think it's a little blurry. Mm-hmm. So... I, I don't think that we have coherence around this yet as a collective, but I think the majority of the individuals at the ready have a general bias toward being reasonable with our clients in terms of charging rates that we can stand by and feel like we can outperform and outdeliver from a value perspective based on what we're charging. And that we can pay ourselves in a way that feels abundant and generous, but not disgusting. <laughs> and that's, I think, you know, certainly we have an orientation toward having enough cushion that we don't ever have to panic. But I don't have a sense that we have coherence around something like sort of larger than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think you said it well. I think right now our unspoken philosophy is reasonableness. Mm-hmm. It is, I'm going to optimize for my own personal 
you know, success in the system, but not at the expense of the collective, not at the expense of equity. I'm going to optimize for what we can do this year, but not at the expense of our long-term success. Like there, there is a lot of just balanced, you know, kind of not leaning too far in one direction or the other individual behavior and thinking going on. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of it. And there isn't like, there's no goal, there's no target, there's no, you know, we're not trying to achieve anything in particular with profit, but we know we want to be profitable and we know we need to have money in the bank to protect us for a rainy day. And we know that we each want to achieve financial success individually. And we just right now are kind of reasonable about optimizing for those things. And when we talk about it, most people are kind of like, well, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that, you know? So Yeah. yeah, I think that's what's going on intuitively. And the, the two things I'd say about that are for the people who listen to that and, go, and you know, I always hear this argument of like, well, the people at my company aren't like the people at the ready. The really easy uh, way to inculcate that kind of mentality is transparency. So mm-hmm. it's like, because pay is self-set, comp is transparent, the P&L is transparent, and our pricing is standardized, it makes it harder to be unreasonable because there is nowhere to hide. And so I think that that's an important sort of norm. And the other thing is just going back to the top of the show, part of the reason that we talk more about creating adaptive and human systems rather than extractive and mercenary systems is because we believe that those are the kinds of systems that grow in terms of profitability. And our company is one of them. Like we yeah. have we have been staunch in our principled approach to our work in the world since the inception of the ready. And every year we have grown significantly. And so it's like the shit works. Like it's it's not that we hate money or we don't want profit or we don't want growth or we don't want scale. We want all the same things that anybody working wants. And we know the way to get those things is by taking a principled approach to work. Totally. And it's not like we've doubled in size every year like we could do if we tried to just tear the roof off and make terrible choices, right? We've grown slowly and steadily, and and it's enough. And it's I think enough. that's that's the point. And I would rather have it be enough for 20 or 30 or 40 years than try to flip the ready to some other consultancy in five years take a bunch of money off the table, everybody eventually hates it and quits or loses their job. And that's my legacy. Fuck that. That trajectory is an option for us. And I don't think there's a single person at the ready who would take it. Oh, hell no. I already tried that once. It sucked. (laughs) Uh, If you like what you are hearing from these socialist capitalists, please (laughs) leave us a review. Uh, or forward our show to someone who needs it. A bunch of you have sent us lovely notes lately, which we love. Always happy to hear from you at podcast at the Cool. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin, as always, for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and how they define success. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>